0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It's good to see everyone out this morning. It seems like, um, whether it just be the season and with the monsoons that have been going through, um, really not just Kentucky, but a lot of the states, um, it just seems like it's been tossing around a lot of pollen allergies things like that and uh, we have a few people out because of those kinds of issues we want to make sure that we keep them in our prayers Uh, but just glad to have you all out Um, just something to add uh, to the announcements that were made earlier Uh, and and just to add in your prayer list back home in Indiana there were uh, there was a just we got terrible uh, news me and Paige did last night of some uh, uh, a brother and sister They uh, were people that we knew very well and that uh, got very close with Paige, took care of her, in fact, while she was going to college. There was a tornado that went through um, where they were camping in McCormick's Creek in Indiana and we got news last night that they could not find them. They were missing and then uh, later in the night it turned out that they both lost their lives in that tornado. So, they have two kids. One is just 20. Um, and so just please keep that family in your prayers. Uh, in fact, the brother's mother was living with him, uh, in their house at the time. So just, it's devastating news to hear for their family. It's devastating news to hear for the family of God. So just please keep that family in your prayers. Um, we're probably going to be going to Indiana throughout the week to, uh, for their funerals. But uh, we would just appreciate your prayers as well because they were dear, dear friends of ours. Um, Again, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be beginning there in just a moment, but when you think about um, just different topics, different points of discussion that the world really, really harps on, um, and not always directly, but subtly, and tries to change when it comes to what God's Word has to say about the matter, you could probably think of a list of things in your head. All kinds of things that the world tries to change what God has said about um, one of the, I think, one of the top on the list, uh, topics on the top of that list, is the family. Um, I've had the opportunity to, to study this for the past several weeks, and I got to preach on it um, yesterday morning in Lexington with um, Brother Jim Hardy, and it, they were going through just a few lessons on the family and and. Really, to start it all off, uh, I preached this lesson, and it was just focusing on the importance of the family. What does God have to say all throughout the Bible about the family? God has very high expectations for the family unit. He wants it to be united. In Psalm 127 and verse 1, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. And I think uh, those words are just so true, and we need to hold those highly, because Unless, you know, a long time ago, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A lot of times people attribute that to Abraham Lincoln. It was actually uh, in the Bible where he got it. And it's so true. God has very high expectations for the family unit. And we need to have those same expectations. We need to strive to meet those expectations. And we're going to talk about why I think this is so important why He wants us to be united in Him, obviously, uh, but some of the applications of that. And So just to start the study this morning, I want to talk about, very quickly, God's use of the family. Um, From the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 beginning, here you have the moment where God institutes the family. He is the one that created it. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord... God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned it into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So from the very beginning, the first thing we see about the family is God is the one who created it. He is the originator of the family unit. And why that's important is because if that's the case, he is the one that determines what it looks like and how it functions. And this is really important because the world likes to try and dictate these things what it should look like and how it should function, or really how it should not function. And they really despise. Despise is not even a strong divorce. They hate what God has to say about the family and the roles that different individuals have in the family. In Mark chapter 10 and verses 6 through 9 we won't read all that, but what does Jesus say as he is answering a question about you know, marriage and divorce? And what, what, he goes all the way back to the beginning since the beginning, from the beginning. He made them male and female. And he gets to the end of that passage. And what does he say? What well, God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. These are foundational truths starting all the way back in Genesis 2 from the very beginning. And so it doesn't lose its impact and it doesn't um, lose its application. The world likes to act like things because of our um modern culture oh we're just so modern and updated um and and we're we're so you know ahead of the times now we know better than this silly little thing called the bible we know better than god's counsel on the matter the world likes to say that you can have two fathers in a family well you when you get to the bible what god is to say is "Mm, there's no such thing or maybe you have two mothers in a family no, that there's no such thing. And I, I even saw something on Facebook just not two weeks ago. I was strolling through, uh, scrolling through my Facebook page. I have no idea how this, what algorithm put this on my feed, but it was talking about a genderless family. And there were two adults that were dressed in both men and women's clothing, and they did everything they possibly could to make sure that they were as androgynous as possible. You, you could not tell whether they were, whether they were male or female. Um, and and, and it, it, was, it was shocking. And what they were doing was raising their kids as genderless. <laughs> no, well, the world says it's the family, so that, I mean, we have to take that. No, 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 God says that's foolishness. And the world's counsel on that means nothing. He determines what the family looks like and what it actually is. And you could look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 where it talks about the roles of these family units. How the husband, he is supposed to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And, and he is supposed to be the head of the household. Well, when, when the world looks at a man, a husband, who tries to lead in such a capacity, what do they say? He's a misogynist. What a sexist. But God has given us better instructions. And so we, we can't allow the world to warp and corrupt what God has said about the family unit. It's too important. From the beginning, these things have been, God instituted it, and they're not supposed to be forgotten today. In fact, he does not take the roles that, that he set up. He does not take the family lightly. Uh, over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, <clears throat> in verse 8, this is very interesting what God says here. It he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's interesting about that is, is just in what Paul says in verse 8 is it sounds like he's saying this is, it almost sounds like this is something that even unbelievers understand. He's saying he's worse than an unbeliever. He's mentioning something that would even make sense for the people who don't necessarily call themselves disciples of Christ or Christians. And I really do think that it goes against the instinct of every human being when you see something like this happen, when someone does not provide for their own or for a man to not fulfill his role within the family unit. And so, Christian or not, God says it's shameful to not fulfill your role in the family. He says it's shameful. He says it's wrong. And so we need, again, <laughs> to not take the world standards on something like this. God is very, very forceful. He emphasizes this over and over again, uh, that these things need to not just uh, be, but they need to remain intact, and we need to work to uphold these things. Now, why is all this so important? I, I think this is most important because he uses this relationship, the family unit, as a foundation to teach us really about the church, about greater truths. Over in <coughs> excuse me, over in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Now we talked about this not too long ago. Sometime last month we talked about that that lesson Christ in the church. And at, in verse 22 and onward of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has been describing this relationship between the husband and the wife. And now the husband is to love his wife, the wife is to respect her husband or submit to her husband. And and we went through those roles. Why is it so infor- important? Because it's used as the foundation when you get to verse 31. Verse 31, he goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, and he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. (laughs) What I love about this passage is that marriage is only the shadow. Marriage is spoken about by God as the deepest bond you can have on this earth. And and it is spoken about in such lofty and high terms and language. And and what God says is, and yet that is just the shadow. (laughs) That's striking. Because what does that mean the substance is? The substance is our role, our function, our work in the church. And our place in it. Now, what, what all of this was meant to do, what it was always meant to do, was prepare us for our function in the church. Not just with marriage, but all throughout the Bible, the family unit is meant to teach us deeper truths about this. And really, I think it's supposed to prepare us for our respective roles. And so, really, that's what I want to talk about to, uh, for the rest of this morning, is how our families, good or bad, will affect the church. And and, uh, the way that I would say it is the quality of people that we have in our families will translate. It will translate into the quality of people that we have in our churches. And again, that's good or bad. Now, I want to make that case with a few examples this morning. First of all, as we ask the question, how does this affect the church? First of all, God uses the family unit to reveal how we should view his people. Um, Over in Mark chapter (coughs) 3... Mark chapter 3. Look at how Jesus speaks about those who would be a part of his kingdom. Mark chapter 3 and verse 31. It says as he was teaching to people his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him behold your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them he said who who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him he said behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let me ask you something. Who does he show as the priority? It's not just blood relatives. No, it's it's the people who do the will of God. It's God's nation, God's holy people. That is who Jesus, God manifested in the flesh, says, this is who must receive priority. Now, I would just say... That already there's, there's that notion with, within our, our blood relatives alone. When you think about our immediate family, we always think about it in terms of, well, they, they do receive priority or, over others. If you have children and, and one of your best friends has children and, and you start focusing more on their children rather than your own, well, that's kind of messed up, isn't it? Because you're not focusing on your responsibility. There's supposed to be a, a higher commitment to your children, not someone else's to yours. Now, that priority is supposed to help us understand how we're supposed to look at all of those people who are a part of Christ's church. Now, I just want to ask a question. Do you really view Christians like Jesus did? He viewed them as family. But do you view them that way? Now, ultimately, I think a lot of people would say they would. I mean, it would be a knee-jerk reaction. Well, of course I do. Ultimately, though what we see is we reveal if we do or not within the local church, the local congregation. It comes out in our actions. It comes out in our words towards our brethren. You know, a lot of times people... We have this term church hoppers, you know, people that church hop everywhere because maybe somebody gets insulted, someone slighted somehow, and then what do they do inevitably? Instead of trying to work through it, instead of trying to have brethren encourage one another, reconcile, well, they church hop. I mean, it's just just a phrase that we use sometimes. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the term family hopping? Have you ever heard someone, oh, well, they just got offended, they got insulted, and so they just decided to family hop. They went over to this other family. No, that, that's that's not a phrase, because that's crazy. <laughs> this is family, and there's going to inevitably be problems. And you are going to inevitably be insulted, whether it's by accident or on purpose. And so, so, with all that being said, does that mean that when, when we are hurt by our family members, are we just going to leave them forever? No, of course not. Why? Because it's family. And that's what you do for family. So again, I ask, do, do you view Christians the way Christ did? You know, we never miss a family gathering. Maybe there's a Friday night is the family night. We always go to that. We never miss that. We want to make sure that we're there. Why? Because we want to be around family. Or we always go home for the holidays. Whenever we have a a big group of our family members in another state. I mean, when we were living in Mississippi, that was a long trip. It was not fun ever, period. It was terrible being in the car that long. I can't imagine being in the car that long (laughs) with a, a baby, I'm very glad that that it was just me and her while we had to make that trip. But why did we do it? Because we wanted to be with family around the holidays. It was important to us because of that that bond that we have. Now, as we translate that over to the church, do we meet God's people with the same amount of fervor and the same amount of diligence and devotion the way we would with our blood relatives? We would travel far. For our blood. But are we going to travel just a few minutes down the road? Are we going to travel maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes? Maybe for some, even an hour. Every chance we get to meet with God's people? Do you do that? Just just here. We have, we meet at 10 p.m. for or 10 a.m. for the Bible study on, on Sundays, and then right after that we have worship. And then after that, even we have an evening service. Are you there for that? What about the Wednesday night service? We just had a gospel meeting. Were you striving to be with brethren as much as possible? Why? Not because it's just an extracurricular activity or it's just a hobby. No, because this is family and they matter more. We need to ask ourselves that question. Because if we can't say yes, then let me tell you, we don't view Christians the way Christ did. And we got to work on that. We can't say we view Christians the way that he did as family unless we're just as committed, even when there is maybe suffering involved. So there's a real sense in which our understanding of the family must be upheld to an even higher degree when it comes to the church. That priority, it shifts. This family now matters most, and we need to show that. Well, another example that we could look at is that how God uses the family unit to show us not only how to view brethren, but how to treat them. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, back in 1 Timothy, and you might just put a bookmark there because we'll be coming back here again. But 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2, do we really treat Christians like family? In verse 1 it says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. The older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, uh, God uses these familial relationships ultimately to show us how we are to interact, how we are to treat, how we are to respond with, you know, just even the people in this room. Now, when when you think about your own father, you know, there he give really he gives an. He, there's no one excluded from this. Everyone that you could possibly think of that exists within the church, Paul talks about in these two verses. But just one example, when you think about your father, maybe um, he does something wrong to you. Or, or maybe, you know, as sometimes people get older, their mind kind of gets away with them. And they say things maybe not the way that, that uh, <laughs> it came across in their head. And, and so maybe they just say something wrong or they just do something wrong. How do you approach your father? Are you going to approach him like you would a child or are you going to approach him differently with respect? A lot of people, would, huh, a lot of people use these moments as opportunities to say, I'm, I'm going to show him what's what. You know, I've done that before uh, with my wife. And let me tell you, it's never a good idea. <laughs> it makes things worse. And why? Because I'm treating her like something she's not. She's not my child. So I'm not going to talk to her like that. I'm going to talk to her like my wife. But a lot of times people, they forget maybe uh, what God says about how we are to treat our brethren, our brothers, and our sisters within the church. And I'm not going to go to my father and, and say, I have a bone to pick with you. I'm going to say, may I approach the bench, Your Honor? <laughs> that, that, that's how I did it when I was growing up. I wasn't going to start yelling at him. I was going to, please, with mercy, accept my humble plea to speak with you, good sir. <laughs> And you know that sounds sarcastic. it's not supposed to be, <laughs> but no there's there's a difference in how we're going to respond. There's a difference in how we're going to communicate because the, that he's my father, he's not my child. And even when it comes to just you know the sibling uh, relationship, I know sometimes people uh, siblings don't act the way they should towards one another, but that's not supposed to be emulated in the church. He says, you need to look at them like they are your brother, and what often often happens is when people get hurt, or they get slighted in some way, or maybe they just see a problem that comes up. People use this as an opportunity or an excuse to be as condescending as possible. That attitude of, oh, I am going to make sure that they know exactly what they did wrong. And a lot of times people will say, uh, there there was a preacher that was talking about a, um, a, a brother who was going to another Christian And he and talking to him about something that that needed to be discussed. But as he was speaking to the preacher, he said, oh, you better believe I exhorted him, all right. And the preacher looked at him and said, you know, I don't think that when you use that word, (laughs) it's the way the Bible uses it. Because what he meant is rebuke. And what he meant was rebuke as harshly as possible, not lovingly. Not like you would a brother. And we can't be showing that kind, of, that kind of worldly mindset, that kind of immature mindset when it comes to this family. And you can tell many brethren grew up learning that there's no such thing as a gentle rebuke, while there are others that we can see by their actions and by their words that they grew up seeing what a loving admonishment is. And when it comes to those brethren that are just as condescending as possible, and, and we see those brethren that just act out and they have no maturity whatsoever, what do we often say about those people? Well, it's clear that, they, that their parents treated them like they were God's gift to earth. It's clear that they weren't disciplined enough. It's clear that they weren't spanked enough as a child because they show it. Now, I would just say, if this teaching starts at home, if it doesn't start at home, it will show in the church. It will leak out into the church because it's supposed to already be prepared in the family unit at home. Well, another example that we could look at God uses the family unit also to prepare us for our function in the church. And really, uh, this is just a part of some of the things we've already said. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 4 through 5, this is just one example that we could look at. There are several. But here's one that I thought was very striking. 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is talking about the qualities that an, an elder, a shepherd should have. You get to verse 4 and it says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so do you see how God uses the family relationships to guide men and to prepare them to be able to be a shepherd? Well, well, I mean, how much of an impact does the proper or the improper family structure in the home have on the church? It's so critical that he says you're not going to be able to, to, to have the mindset you're supposed to. You're not going to be able to have the, have the experience that you're supposed to to serve in this function unless this is the case at home. Now, this is not to say that you can't be a righteous man of God or woman of God without children or even without a spouse. But what God stresses is that one simply cannot be equipped, and I think that's the perfect word, they cannot be equipped to be a shepherd without this kind of experience. Now, you think about that. Think about that. Aren't you glad that God put this in place? Can you imagine what a mess it would be and even has been in some places, you can probably think of some situations where something like this has occurred. But but can you imagine what a mess it creates when men who can't rule their own households righteously try to, you know, lead God's flock. I tell you, it always ends with disaster. It creates disaster within the church, and and then that even leaks out. And so, there's there's... And there's more examples that we could give, but, but again, do you just see how God wishes to use our f- familial relationships to prepare and equip us for, for, for many functions in the church? We already looked at Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about the husband and the wife. It's supposed to prepare us. It's supposed to guide us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're being equipped to deal with Christians. We're being equipped to figure out how we are to treat Christians and view them. Well, another example in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, God uses the family unit to teach us how to grow in the church. Second Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 beginning it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so just from the outset, we understand it's God's word. That is the only thing that equips us and it equips us for everything, everything. <laughs> and so just, we have that from the outset as a foundation. But, but I, I would say that <laughs> when you start Looking in, in the homes, in our homes, in the family unit, what you see is that this will affect our attitude towards discipline often. All of those things that were mentioned in verse 16 ultimately are discipline. It tends to be we only view that word discipline in negative ways. We always look at it as punitive. And what I mean by that is it's always some, it, it always has to do with punishment. But that's simply not the only, that's not the only aspect of discipline. When people exercise, well maybe some people would view that as self-punishment, but but you know when when people exercise, what are they doing? They're not they're not going through a punishment, but what they're doing is try to better themselves. What they're doing is try to, you know, maybe get slimmer, lose weight, things like that. That's discipline. We talk about disciplining our mind. That's not punitive. What it is is growing. It's it's growth in our in our mindset, growth in our attitudes. And so discipline is not just a negative thing. Now, I would suggest that, if, if it, it, what, that what you see in the household, what you see in the home, um, if, if there's not that discipline there, well, it's just, as we were already mentioning a moment ago, it's just going to create disaster. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15, wisdom says the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And I think that's absolutely the case. If it doesn't start in the household, what do you think will happen when the child grows up and experiences it for the first time in the church? Well, they've been spoiled in the house, so what is going to happen is they have no idea how to respond. Their only retort is going to be lashing out. Or maybe uh, they just won't listen. Or, and this is what you often see, they're just going to blame everybody else. And why? Again, because because they were spoiled. They never learned how to learn from discipline or how to learn from from the need for repentance in the home. Now, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 17 gives us the other side of this. Correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. So So you have both contrasts. In one case, he says, it will bring shame if this doesn't start a home. On the other hand, it says, if you discipline your son, and we could go to several other proverbs, but what he says is, if you discipline your son, what you're going to find is that is going to, not bring shame, but the opposite. It's going to bring uh, exaltation. When it starts in the home, and a child has learned that there are moments where repentance is needed, where a change needs to occur, he'll be equipped to change for the better, not the worse. Now, th- this is... <laughs> This is just too important to, 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 you know, just hear once and say, oh, whatever. I mean, yeah, sure, that's the case. No, if it starts at home. and, And let me just say, I know that this is the rule, not the exception. But the rule is if it starts at home, it will equip us. It will better us so that way we're prepared enough to grow when it comes to the church. And again, even here there's something, there's probably several examples we can think of in our own experience, in our own lifetime, uh, when we think about this. But, but one more application here that I want to make, one more example. And I think that this is just an easy one. You've probably already thought of it. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Uh, God uses the family unit to grow us up in zeal for God's word. If the Bible isn't focused on in the home, how do you think that will translate into the church? Sometimes um, people ask questions when they look at a story like in the Judges. You have such a faithful generation throughout Joshua. And even when you get into the book of Judges, you even see some of that faithful generation, some of their actions, what they did. You get to the very beginning of the book, though, in chapter 2 of Judges, in verse 10, and it says, all that faithful generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now, you look at something like that, and just in one lifetime, people sometimes ask, how could a faithless generation rise up so quickly after such a faithful generation, such a faithful people? Again, I just come back to that first question. What do you think happens when the Bible is not focused on at home? Sometimes uh, when we think about that, I, again, I think even here we may brush it off too quickly. It's, it's because, I think, ultimately, when you look at Israel's example, they didn't integrate it into their lives, into their homes enough. What did Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 9 say? But that you think about it always. You think about it when you go to work. Think about it when you're on the wayside, when you lay down, when you rise up. Every single moment, you need to be thinking about it, you need to be meditating on it, and you need to be speaking it. And I think one of the main reasons that this was not uh, that that you have a faithless generation grow up is because it wasn't integrated enough. It wasn't spoken about enough. It wasn't thought about enough. I remember talking to someone on the phone a few years ago, uh not well not too long ago and and we were just kind of talking about, you know, future, you know, our their future and I was just kind of questioning, you know, with such different beliefs, he, he was dating someone that he thought maybe he was going to marry at some point, and, and she was not a Christian. She didn't grow up the same way he did. And, and he, he, we were just talking about that, and I asked, what do you think is going to happen when you guys have children and you want to say that you think that there's a God, and she wants to say there's no such thing? Don't you think that's going to create some problems? And he was telling me his answer. He said, you know, <clears throat> we've talked about that, and we, we just don't want to force anything on our kids whenever we do have them. We don't want to force anything on them. We want them to come to their own conclusions. We want them to make their own decisions. We, we really just want them to be their own thinkers. And and we're not going to force anything on them. And and I just, I thought about that. Immediately, I just said, you know, I, I don't even think you believe that, really. And he said, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I said it. And I, I really don't think you believe that. Let's take that to its, to its logical conclusion. Do, do you say, um... If your child is going to school and one day they tell you that someone, a friend of theirs, offered them drugs, are you still not going to be a little bit forceful? Are you still going to say, oh, we just want them to make their own decisions? With drugs? No, you're going to say, first of all, we're taking you out of the school. <laughs> we're moving you to another one. You're never going to see this person again. No, we're, we, we get very forceful. We say, absolutely not. We're not going to let them go. Why? Because especially being young people, they're not equipped yet. They don't have maybe that same wisdom that, we, that, that you know, the parents will. And so we are going to be quite forceful about that. And, and what's striking about that is we are very strict when it comes to something like drugs, but we're not going to be as strict when it comes to eternal life. That makes no sense. What matters most, a shorter long life on this earth or eternity in hell or with God? Oh, I think we all know the answer. It's an easy answer. What matters most is the eternal life with God, not in eternal damnation. And so we need to be sure that we are integrating the Bible, God's word, into our homes. Are we having Bible studies with our children? Are we having Bible studies with our spouse? Are we reading the Bible just ourselves? Because people do see that. They see us, and they see us striving to get closer to God and striving to to get closer with His Word. And that will have an effect on them. But I would just add, again, as we've made the point all throughout this lesson, if it doesn't start in the home, what you're going to see is a church filled with people that don't care enough about Bible study. A church filled with people that simply does not really, you know, I believe in God, but I think we can come to some conclusions without this. I think maybe I can make conclusions outside, really, of the wisdom of God. That's what happens, because it will translate over into the church. And so just, those are just a few examples. And with all that being said, you may be thinking, uh, just very simply, I've, I've been failing here. I don't know what to do. I mean, there, there are several examples, other examples we could go to. But you may be thinking, if I've been failing so much in this, what am I supposed to do right now? And as you see on the screen before you, I would just say the simplest and the best answer is start focusing on it right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till later this evening. Start right now. And what might that look like? Well, what that means is husbands, when God says that you're the head of the household, guess what that means? You're the head of the household. So you need to start acting like it. And you need to make sure that you're not shirking the responsibilities to your wife, or trying to, or or really just acting like you know you get off work whenever you go home with your kids. Oh, this is my me time now. I'm off work. No, you're on duty because you're with your family, and you are the head of the house. And so we need to start acting like it. Start leading the way God says that we're supposed to. Start having those Bible studies at home. Don't just leave it for Wednesdays and Sunday mornings. I'll tell you what, that leads to disaster. When we only leave it for church services, guess what? The kids will never make that a part of their home because it wasn't a part of their home growing up. So start having those Bible studies with your family. Start having those Bible studies just for yourself. If you're not viewing the brethren the way you're supposed to, cultivate that familial love and 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 start treating them as what they are brothers and sisters in Christ and view them the way Christ viewed them you may be thinking well i you know this whole time this morning we've just been talking about the family and we've been talking about you know how we're supposed to treat our kids or maybe our spouses you may be someone who is just single you may be celibate you may be someone who doesn't necessarily have that same family unit you may not have a spouse or kids Now, I hope that you don't come away from this lesson thinking that there's nothing for me to take. There's everything for you to take. Because what God says is, and we could look at Mark chapter 10 when the disciples come to Jesus as he gives a difficult command. And and Peter, he comes and he says, Lord, we've left everything. What are we going to receive? And what's beautiful about that is Jesus doesn't say, "Just, just wait until heaven. That would be enough. That would be enough. But what he says is, on here, on this plane, Even before you get to heaven, what are you going to gain? Brothers? Sisters? Fathers? Mothers? You may have had a terrible childhood because simply your parents were not what God said they should be. You may have had just a a father that wasn't there, that wasn't present. But what Christ invites you to is a family where the father is perfect. Siblings sometimes aren't so perfect, but we're striving to be. Striving to look more like him. And so the invitation is not, you come to a perfect family. It's you come to a perfect father. And everything else, it'll take care of itself. So do you want to be a united family? Well, you're going to have to go back to the originator. As we started in Genesis chapter 2, you're going to have to look to God. You want to fix your home, you must come to God. You want to fix Help, encourage, benefit the church, you must come to God. The devil does not want us to fix our homes. Ultimately, I think because he doesn't want us to fix or help our churches. And so let's not allow him to hinder what our God wants from us. You may be a Christian and you may not have been acting the way you should have towards your brethren, even towards the, our perfect father. What you need to do is come back to this family. You may never have been a Christian. What you need to do is join it. And I'm telling you, just like we talked about from Mark chapter 10, what you gain is, is, is worth more than all the riches that this world can offer. You get a bond. You get a relationship with people who are striving to look just like their father. Don't, don't you want that? I want that for you. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let us help you. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.